All righty. Morning, everybody. A little quiet. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> there we go. A little better. Uh, well, my name is Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek. If you're new with us, uh, we want to say welcome to you. It's great to have you here this morning. We, we definitely love visitors and uh, would love to get to know you. So on your way out this morning, uh, take a little bit of time, stop by the Welcome Center, say hello, uh, ask whatever questions you have, but we would love for you to uh, make the most of your visit this morning, get to know you a little bit, you can get to know us. Uh, but this morning we are coming to the end of a seven-year journey, a little bit bittersweet, uh, but we are finally there, we're arriving at the end of the Gospel of Luke. We have not been studying it for seven straight years, uh, but we have been studying it for seven straight summers. Okay, and I know it's not even summer yet. We picked up early this year, uh, but we're wrapping up the book of Luke today. We're in Luke chapter 24. We are in verses 50 through 53, the very, very end of the book of Luke. And we're going to get our time started this morning as we study the gospel of Luke together by just reading the word of God. But I wanted to mention, before we jump in and read our text, next week, we're back into the book of Genesis. Okay, this fall, we started the book of Genesis, and we will pick that up next week in Genesis chapter 14, where we left off right before Easter. Uh, But for today, we're going to finish strong in the gospel of Luke. And we're going to begin our time just by reading the word of God together. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bible... If you have a study guide, you can go ahead and get that out. Open it up to Luke chapter 24. And we will begin by reading the word of God together. It says this. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, meaning Jesus, with his disciples. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple complex, praising God. Short and sweet today, that is our text. And before we jump in and study our text, normally I would invite you all to take just a couple minutes here, put your heads together, and pray. But for the sake of time this morning, I would invite you all just to join with me in prayer. Okay, we need to begin our time before we get to the word of God in humble prayer before the Father. Our hearts need it, our minds need it. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we we thank you that you're worthy of our worship. You are you are our redeemer and our greatest treasure, God. That is true. Our hearts need to be reminded of that this morning, God. May we I'd be encouraged today, God, to, to remember you are worthy. May our worship reflect the worthiness of Christ. We pray for humility in your word this morning, God. We pray that your word would land upon soft, tender hearts, not proud, stony hearts, God. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, who here likes a good movie series? Anybody a fan of, like, Harry Potter? Marvel Comic Universe, Lord of the Rings. Those are great movie series. But you know what the greatest movie series of all time is? It's Star Wars, (laughs) obviously. And part of the reason why the answer to that question is so obvious is because every Star Wars movie, it ends with like the perfect segue into the next one. Like think about this. There's no Star Wars movie that ends and you think, boy, I just, I don't know if they're going to be able to make another one. No, it's, it's like 
every Star Wars movie ends with, with great anticipation. When is the next one going to come? When is the story going to be completed? And this morning, we're coming to the end of a seven-year journey, like I said earlier. But if you know the writing of Luke, you know that the end of Luke, it's not really an ending. It's more like a beginning. It's a segue. It's a setup for the sequel, which is the church age, which Luke is about to launch into in the book of Acts. And so even though this is the end of Luke, it's really as much a beginning as it is an ending. The last four verses of Luke perfectly set us up to launch into the church age, the church age, which the book of Acts is all about. But Luke 24 Luke is putting a bow on the earthly ministry of Jesus as he prepares to launch us out into the church age. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us, I wrote the first narrative, meaning the book of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. The book of Luke, it is all about the earthly ministry of Jesus. And he sets us up at the very end of Luke 24, to move forward from the earthly ministry of Jesus into the church age. The age that you and I still live in today. And last week, Jesus, he laid the foundation for the church age. That's what the Great Commission really is. Jesus, he, he set the foundation for the church age. When he came to his disciples, he appeared to them in bodily, resurrected form. And then he taught them through all the word of God, like the greatest Bible study of all time. Jesus spells out for them how all of the word of God, this is foundational to the church age. He spells out how all the word of God, it is one complete, coherent story about how God sent Christ to redeem the world through his death and resurrection, and Christ must be proclaimed to all the nations. You see, in that declaration, when Jesus, he spells out for them through all of the word of God, he lays this solid foundation of the unmovable, inerrant word of God. He lays that foundation and he explains to them how all of it points to the death and resurrection of Jesus and his church must proclaim Christ to all the nations. When he does that, he is not just establishing the church, but he is giving the church its mission. And the mission of the church, the church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all of the nations. That is why the church exists. This is why Christ established his church. The church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all the nations and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, our church exists for that purpose. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you exist for that purpose. And churches can be confused about who they are and what their mission is. Just like believers can be confused about who they are and what their mission is. I did a little bit of looking this week just to get a feel for some of the mission statements that churches have. And here are some of the options that I found while perusing the internet. Helping people discover God. That was one of the mission statements that I found. Helping people discover God. He's out there. We just need to discover him. Another mission statement I found was this, relationship, not religion. Our mission as a church is to fight the battle of relationship over religion. 
Another example I found was this, striving to follow Jesus' example. Our church exists to follow the example of Jesus. Another one, to provide a safe and positive environment for spiritual growth of all, to welcome and serve others, to reach out to those in need, and to share the gospel. Kind of long? You see, our, our church, the church exists to provide a safe and positive environment for spiritual growth. Another one, we are an open, open-minded community of faith seeking to encounter God in new and exciting ways. Okay, our church exists to be open-minded and seek God in new, exciting ways. Not old ways, not boring ways, <laughs> new ways, exciting ways. Another said this, our church exists to be a community of faith rooted in hospitality and love. Our church exists for the sake of hospitality and love. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these as things to pursue in the church. In fact, these are, for the most part, all wonderful parts of the Christian life. But what I'm saying is Jesus created the church. We did not. Christ established the church and he established it with a mission. And we don't have the authority to deviate. You see, as churches or as a believer, we don't have the authority to decide the mission of the church. Jesus established his church and he said, all authority on heaven and earth belongs to me. Therefore, my church will go and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. My church will go and make disciples of all the nations. The mission that Christ gave his church is not just to seek God in new exciting ways. The mission that Christ gave his church is to glorify him by making disciples of all the nations. And as Jesus ascends in Luke chapter 24... He has established his church. He has laid the foundation by giving the church its mission. And now he is preparing to launch his church out into the world to go and proclaim the gospel, to actually do it, to live out the mission, to proclaim Christ to all the nations. And they must proclaim Christ to everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. And here's the big question that I want us to wrestle with this morning as we get into this last piece of Luke 24. How is the church supposed to take Christ to all the nations? How in the world is that supposed to happen? How does the church go out into the world and proclaim Christ to everyone, everywhere, no exceptions? And to answer that question, we're going to look to our text. We need to answer life's biggest questions through the Word of God. Okay, And this morning, we're going to answer that question through our text. And we're going to find just one answer to that question this morning. There are many more answers. If you want the book of Acts, which we will study someday together in the church, the book of Acts spells out for us a plethora of answers about how the church does carry Christ into the world. But today we're just going to look to our text and find one answer of how the church is to proclaim Christ in all the nations. And this is incredibly important because if you are a believer, if you're in the church, this is your mission. So how does the church take the gospel to the nations? And here's the answer from our text. The mission of the church starts with joyful worship. The mission of the church It begins 
with joyful worship. If the gospel is going to be carried out to the nations, it must be carried out through joyful worship. And I want you to see this in the text, and then I'm going to give you four reasons why the mission of the church begins with joyful worship. Okay, but first, just look at the text with me. So in Luke chapter 24, it says this, He led them out as far as Bethany, meaning Jesus with his disciples. He led them out as far as Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them, and he was carried up into heaven in front of their very eyes. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple complex, praising God, joyfully worshiping God. What is going on here in Luke chapter 24? What's the the context here? What's the setting? Well, we need to remember this is after Jesus. He he has risen from the grave. Okay, He's already met with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has met with them in the room in Jerusalem. And now he leads them out to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, near Bethany. And he's with them one last time. Okay, And he blesses them. And then he ascends up into heaven in front of their very eyes. And see, this is one of those situations where it's like, you cannot just treat Jesus like a good teacher. You can't just treat Jesus like, yeah, he's a good man. He taught good things. No, no, no. This is either true or it's not true. This either happened or it didn't happen. Human beings don't just, in front of your eyes, ascend up to heaven apart from the glorious work of God. So Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he is the Lord. And here he is demonstrating once again, I am the Lord. And he ascends to heaven right in front of their eyes. And he assumes the place where he still resides today at the right hand of the Father. And after Jesus ascends to heaven, Something incredible happens. You know what it is? Human beings joyfully worship the Son of God. Do you realize that's about the greatest miracle in the entire world? You you see, these human beings, they're no different than you and me. And what I know to be true is this. My human heart Apart from the gracious, glorious work of God, my human heart is hopelessly enslaved to selfishness. Like I am hopelessly self-centered and sinful, enslaved to it. And because of that, God, he describes in his word that my heart, it is dead. It might be beating in my chest, but it is dead, spiritually speaking, enslaved to itself, caved in on itself. Worshipping itself. And all of a sudden, here on the Mount of Olives, you have human beings with the same enslaved, dead heart, joyfully and rightly worshipping the Son of God. 
surrendering the fate of their lives willingly, joyfully over to the Son of God. Worshiping Him as Lord, saying, all of our lives are in your hands. Joyfully worshiping Jesus. It is an absolute miracle. And right there, this is where the church begins. This is where the church starts. When human beings, once dead in sin, enslaved, hopelessly under the wrath of God, willingly, joyfully begin to worship the Son of God. And this is where the mission begins, proclaiming Christ to the nations. It begins right there in their joyful worship. And I want to give you four reasons this morning why that is true. Why the mission of the church, proclaiming Christ to the nations, it begins with joyful worship. Reason number one. Joyful worship is what places us in Christ in the first place. Joyful worship, it is what actually places us in Christ in the first place. Why is it that the mission of the church would start with joyful worship? Well, it's because apart from that, you are not in the church. If somebody were to ask you, how, did you become, how do you become a Christian? Like, hey, I, I'm just curious, how, how would I become a Christian? If somebody asked you that question, what would you say to them? You might point them to Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Not through works. You might point to John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the son Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. You know what they're going to ask you next though? What in the world does it mean to believe in Jesus? Like, Do I need to just believe he existed? I believe in Jesus. I think he really existed. Does that make me a Christian? Does it mean that you need to believe that he was a good teacher or a good man? I believe he was a good teacher. Does that make you a Christian? Or how about this? I think Christianity is probably true. Does that make you a Christian? Here's what we need to understand. To believe in Jesus, it has as much to do with who or what we worship as it does with what we intellectually agree to. Thinking that Christianity is true, thinking that Christianity is probably mostly true, it doesn't make you a Christian. Belief, faith, these are mind words and these are heart words. They, they describe things that we intellectually assent to, but they also are words that describe a posture of the heart. And it's a posture that has to do with worship. Either we joyfully worship Jesus or we are not in Jesus at all. Either we joyfully worship Christ or we're not in his church. See, we might physically come to church, but we are not part of his church until our hearts are converted. And that has to do with worship. This is why the mission of the church begins with joyfully worshiping Christ. Without the joyful worship of Christ, the church does not exist. And before we move on to our second reason, I just want you to think about this quickly. Number one, do you worship Jesus? 
Do you worship him? Is that what you come here to do? You see, a lot of people, they, they, they come to church. They spend a lot of time in the church, but they spend very little time actually worshiping Christ. Do you worship Jesus? And if you do, do you have his joy? Is your life marked by his joy? Is your life marked by the joyful worship of Christ? The mission of the church starts with joyful worship of our Savior. Reason number two that the mission of the church starts with joyful worship is that joyful worship is what differentiates believers. This is what makes us different. This is what marks us as different. You, you know what becomes obvious when you spend time looking at Christian or at church mission statements like I did this week? It becomes obvious what churches think makes them different from everybody else, from the rest of the world and from the rest of churches in the world. And what becomes clear is that people are convinced that what sets them apart is how nice they are or how open-minded or how loving or how kind, how hospitable. And that's great. We can point to passages like John 13, 35. And we say, see, it's our love that marks us and separates us. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Absolutely true. Gloriously true. But do you know what really sets the church apart from everybody else in the world? It's who we worship. See, there are a lot of people in the world that try to be loving. But believers are the only people on the planet who actually joyfully worship the Son of God. If you are a believer... What makes you different is not that you try harder than everybody else to be super nice and to be open-minded. It's that you look at Jesus and there's no veil over your eyes and there's no veil over your heart. You see the glorious Son of God as He really is and because of that, you are being transformed into the glorious image of Christ Unlike anybody else in the world who is not in Christ, no one else on the planet is being transformed into the glorious image of the Son of God. Only those who look at Christ with unveiled eyes, with unveiled heart, and see His glory as He really is and worship Him. And through that, you are being transformed into the same glorious image of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled faces, we are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Because the veil's been lifted. And we are being transformed, unlike anybody else who's outside of Christ, into the glorious image of God from glory to glory. Do you know what this is saying? It is the joyful worship of Christ, the fact that we see God in his true glory that sets us apart. It is worship that makes us different. Lots of people are nice. Lots of people are trying hard to be nice. But only Christians are being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. Only Christians. And that's because we see his glory and we worship him. And as that happens, God is transforming us, changing us. The mission of the church starts with joyful worship because that is what changes us and that is what differentiates us. 
That is what makes you different from everyone else. It is the gracious work of God as we worship him. Reason number three that the mission of the church starts with joyful worship is that joyful worship is the most powerful motive in the world. Joyful worship, it's the most powerful motive in the world. And you see, difficult tasks demand great motives. Hard things demand great motives. The harder and longer the task, the more important the motive becomes. The other day, I needed to get up on my roof to remove the leaves out of my gutters. Anybody enjoy doing that? No. It's miserable. It's not that hard. I mean, it's fine. I kind of like heights a little bit. But there are a lot of things I would rather do than climb up on my roof and then throw soggy leaves out of my gutters while hanging over the edge. It's like a 30-minute job, okay? But it took me probably three or four rainstorms of just watching my gutters overflow and destroy all of my landscaping and my patio before I finally got motivated enough to get up on my roof and take the soggy leaves out of my gutters. Not that hard. Not that long. But you see, the task that we've been given as Christians, it is a task that is overwhelming. It is a task that demands our very lives. And it is a task... That requires sacrifice on every single level. To to bring Christ, to proclaim Christ to everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. This is a task that demands sacrifice on every level. It requires financial giving that will put you in financial hardship. It will. To be obedient to God, it will put you under financial distress. To be obedient to God, it's going to require discipline that no one else is ever going to see in your life. To be disciplined in prayer to be disciplined in the word of God, to be disciplined to share the gospel when no one else is around, to be disciplined to initiate relationships. The task of God, the mission of the church, it is going to require some to sell their homes and to move all over the country, to move all over the world, to separate from family and loved ones, to learn new languages, to eat food that gives you constant stomach problems. It is going to require some to even give their very lives To take Christ into places where it is not safe. To bring Jesus to people who are not safe. Who don't yet have Christ. And if we are going to be people who are found faithful in the task to the very end. I would argue the only motive that will get us to the finish line. Is the joyful worship of Jesus Christ. Not the desire for good reputation. Not the feeling of guilt. It is only joyful worship of Christ that will take us to the finish line in this task. You know, it's one thing to start strong. It's one thing to have a good season or a good day or a good week. And there are lots of motives that can move me to have a good day or a good week. But the only way to walk in the kind of unseen sacrifice required to carry out the mission of the church and to see it to the very end is the joyful worship of Jesus Christ. We must be compelled and controlled by joyful worship of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For the love of Christ compels or controls us. Since we have reached this conclusion, one died for all, therefore all have died. The whole world is dead in sin, and Christ has died for them. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for the one who died For them 
and was raised. We have a new motive to live for Jesus Christ in joyful worship of him. Do you know why he said it's the love of Christ? Why did Paul say this? It's the love of Christ that controls us. It is the love of Jesus that controls, that moves us. He said it because it's the only motive strong enough to carry us through to the finish line in the mission that God has given us as a church and as believers. No other. You see, people can live their whole lives just building their reputation. They can live their whole lives trying to escape guilt or prove their self-righteousness. But that will not lead them to a life that glorifies God. In the hidden places and in all of the ways that are required to accomplish the mission that God has given us as a church. Joyful worship is the most powerful motive in the world. And I think the number one reason many churches, many believers become disengaged in the fight to bring the gospel to everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. Why do people check out? Why why do people kind of decide like, well, cool, that's not for me. Why do people check out? I believe it's because it's been a very long time since they really joyfully worshipped Jesus. What is your worship life like? And I'm not talking about flamboyance. I'm just saying that comatose Christianity will not move you where God is leading. Comatose Christianity can get you to come to church. But it will not move you to do what it takes to bring Christ to the nations. Reason number four. Why why does the mission of the church to proclaim Christ to the nations, why does that start with joyful worship? It is because joyful worship is what points the world to Jesus. It's joyful worship that points the world to the worth and value of Christ. You ever heard the saying, you can tell what a man worships by looking at his checkbook? You you middle schoolers, high schoolers, basically anybody younger than me is like, what's a checkbook? (laughs) But the point is this. You can tell what somebody values and how much they value it, not by what they say, but by peering into their life. By seeing what does your life say? About the things that you value and worship. If you want to know how valuable something is to a man, don't ask him. See, when you ask a question like that, you know what you'll get? You'll get the answer that they think they are supposed to say. Like when people are interviewed after sports games sometimes. They're they're asked kind of about like their priorities. It's very easy for people to say, you know, it's all about the glory of God. God's number one. Biggest priority is God. It's easy to say it. A lot of people know that's true. You, you ask somebody on the street, what are, your, what are your biggest priorities? Nobody's like video games. It's like, oh, you know, uh, faith, family, freedom, those sorts of things. But what does your life say? 
You know who knows how much somebody values something? Your wife knows. Your kids know. Your friends know. Because it's not just our words or our ideas about what ought to be valuable that set our priorities or that declare the worth of the things in our lives. And when it comes to Christ, our lives and our worship declare the glory and worth of Jesus far more than what we would say if we were sat down in an interview or given a multiple choice test. It is our lives and our worship that declares to the world the worthiness of Jesus. You see, we can tell people that Jesus is worthy and we proclaim the message of Christ. We explain the worth and the value of Jesus and that's great. And if all people have to go on is our words, well then I guess they'll just have to take us for our word. But that's not all that people have to go on. Instead, they have our lives and our worship to verify what are you... What, what do you really think about the worth and value of Jesus? And you see the church, it's like a city on a hill. Jesus said in Matthew five fourteen, You are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill which cannot be hidden. That's what the church is. A city on a hill to be seen, to be observed. And he can't be hidden. And eventually the world, they step in to see who is this Jesus and what is he worth? Is he as glorious as you claim he is? What is he worth? Is he worth my life? And you see, they're asking that question because the gospel demands your life. What did Jesus demand? You must give up your life. Lay it down. Pick up your cross and come follow me. The gospel demands your very life. And so the world comes in to see through the church. Is he worth it? Do you think he's worth it? Do you think he's actually worth everything? And they don't care so much what you would say if they sat you down in an interview. They want to know. What does your life say? What does your worship say? They don't answer this question by having you fill out a doctrinal exam. They want to look you in the eyeballs and see how do you sing to your Savior? Is he worthy? They want to look you in the eyes when you hear his word taught. Is he worthy? They want to look you in the eyes when you pray, when you commune, And see, they know. Do you think he's worthy? Do you really think he's worthy of giving up everything to follow him? And when the church is full of comatose Christians who are half asleep or fully asleep, and the church is full of empty worship, the world knows Jesus is not worthy. But when the world steps in and they see the church, joyfully worshiping their Savior. 
when they see a church full of broken sinners like you and me, full of joyful worship, they know he is worthy. He is worthy. It is our joyful worship that points the world to Jesus, not just our doctrine. And that is why joyful worship is the beginning of the church taking Christ to the nations. Just to close this morning, I want to give you one practical application, which is this. Joyfully worship Jesus. Joyfully worship Jesus. This is no small thing. This is where all mission really begins in the church and in your life as a believer. Joyfully worship Jesus. You know, most of the time when we have a practical application, I'm sending you out with something to do throughout the week. And and this is no different. And I hope you take it seriously. Spend some time this week in joyful worship of Christ. You husbands, get your wife out of the house for a few hours this week to spend some time just worshiping Jesus in the word, in prayer, in prayer walk, whatever it might be. Wives, do the same. As a family, spend some time in joyful worship this week. You know, every Saturday morning, we make it a habit in my house of just taking 15, 30 minutes and worshiping Christ together as a family. And I want to exhort you, get real time worshiping Christ joyfully this week. But you know what is awesome about our application from the text this morning? We, we get a chance to do it today, together, as a church body. We can put it into practice right now. And I think what better way, what better place, what better time to joyfully worship our Savior than here and now together as a body of believers. And we're going to close our time together this morning with worship in a number of different ways. Number one, we're going to take some time in communion. Okay, communion, it is a joyful, worshipful time for believers to come together Commune and fellowship with one another at the table of Christ. And we have been invited there. We have come there all through the same body and blood. All through the same door. None of us arrive there on our own merits or by our own righteousness. We are here together by the body and blood of Jesus. That's what we celebrate. That's what we worship. That's what we proclaim through communion. Then we're going to have a baptism It is a wonderful opportunity for us as believers to welcome into the church family a fellow believer in Christ. And then we're going to close with singing. Okay, Joyfully singing to one another and to the Lord. Words that are true. Praising, declaring words that are true about Him. And we're going to do that together. But first we're going to take this time in communion. In communion, it is a special, unique time for believers in Christ. To have that communion, that fellowship in the Lord with one another. Okay, so this is a time for believers. If you are not yet a believer in Christ, if you do not yet worship Christ and Christ alone, then communion is not for you. I would ask you to just respectfully abstain from the communion elements. Okay, if you are a believer though, I'm going to encourage you to get the communion elements. They're under the seat in front of you. You can grab the the cup and the bread is on top of the cup. And those elements, they are physical representations for us of the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed for us that we might be in the righteousness of God through Christ. And we'll take a few minutes here together. I'm going to pray, and then you all can spend a few minutes in your seats with one another, 
just celebrating and worshiping, praising God for his work on the cross. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for the gift of Christ. Thank you, God, that you're worthy of worship. You saved us. And you didn't just save us, God. You, you, you didn't just erase our debt that stood against us, God. You gave us the very righteousness of Jesus that we have an incredible in, eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away. It was not earned by us. It cannot be lost by us, God. It has been earned by your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Thank you that we have the hope of heaven. God, thank you that as you call us into the mission as a church, Lord, you're not asking us to go alone. You are with us always, and you are not asking us to go by our own merit or our own strength. You are empowering us through your Holy Spirit, which you have given as a gift and as a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance in Christ, God. Thank you that there is always a reason for joy, no matter what our circumstances are in life. And life will throw many things at us, God. This life is full of brokenness and sin. Our own hearts, God can be full of brokenness and sin, and yet, through Christ, all is redeemed. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to rejoice in you today, God, and joyfully worship you as a body of believers together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.